So we are continuing our series called TGIF. Well, TGIF. Who thought that would be a tongue twister? Thank God it's Friday. Recovering the scandal of the cross. Um, I am uh, convinced that the cross is, there's far more depth, uh, mystery, transformation, and meaning to the cross than sometimes we assume there is. Um, it's such, a, it's a, such a big, complex, holistic thing that God did 2,000 years ago um, that often when we talk about the cross, we end up uh, talking metaphorically because, uh, not that it's not true, uh, last week we talked about the, the idea of metaphor, that sometimes when we don't understand something, the only way to actually start to grasp the reality and the truth of something is through metaphor. Um, so I forgot to announce junior high conversation. If you're junior high, grade six to eight, you're released uh, to, to theater four. Uh, there's a specific message for you there. So metaphor. So we talk in metaphor when we can't completely convey uh, the depth and the meaning of something. Uh, that's why often Jesus talks in parables, right? He's teaching, he's talking in parables, he's saying, you know, the kingdom of God is like this. And then he takes something, you know, he talk, uh, you know, about a, you know, a, a, a mustard plant, and you say, the, the kingdom of God is like this, and it starts small, and it grows, and becomes one of the biggest plants. You take something very practical to try and explain the reality to us of what God's kingdom is like. And throughout the scriptures, we have metaphors. Um, in the New Testament, when uh, the gospel writers, when uh, the apostle Paul, when Peter, when John, when other, when other people are writing about the cross, uh, they tend to use metaphors to try and convey to us to get a glimpse of the depth, the grace, the transformative impact uh, that the cross has had and continues to have. And last week we talked about how the salvation that was accomplished on the cross was something that happened in the past 2,000 years ago. It's also something that's ongoing and there's still a salvation, uh, a complete restoration of salvation that we're waiting for. So it's both past, present, and future. And so there's this depth to the cross um, that we get glimpses of and our hope in this series was just to, to dive in a little bit deeper than we sometimes do to help understand, uh, maybe in a, in a new way, uh, the depth of what the cross has done for us. Last week, I used a metaphor of the golf, the golf bag. Um, how many golfers we got in the audience? Okay, put up your hands nice and high so I can, I can see the golfers. There we go. Okay, how many of you guys would say you're good at golf? Put your hand in, in the air. Okay, a few, a few confident folks there. Uh, how many people that have tried golfing and you've convinced yourself you do not like golfing? There's a few of those. Um, how many of you are like me that you enjoy golfing, uh, but you're just not that good? Yeah, there's times where you enjoy, there's times where you don't. Um, I do, it, confession, um, I hit my putter longer than I hit other clubs in my bag. That's the type of golfer I am. Uh, but good golfers, as I mentioned last week, they'll, they'll look at the, the clubs in their bag and they'll say, uh, this club is actually is my 140-yard club and I, I'll use it in this situation when I'm 140 yards out. This is my sand wedge and I'll use it when I'm in the sand and, and, and they know their clubs well enough. This is my driver and you know, on a par five, I use this one. On a par, you know, par four, I might pull out my, my three wood instead of the one wood and, you know, and they understand their clubs, they know when to use them, how far to hit them, how far they'll hit them. Uh, and they pull on these different clubs at different points in the golf course because there's, they provide, um, uh, they, they provide <laughs> uh, what you need at different points. So in scripture, we see different metaphors kind of talking about the cross. And sometimes people get in debate, well, is the cross this, is the cross, is it, did something, you know, is it more legal, is it, is it, primarily this judicial thing that God said we're not guilty? Is it more economic that God has ransomed us? Is it more about relationship reconciliation? Uh, is it more about this military metaphor where God conquers the devil and all evil? Is it more about worship and the talk of Jesus being our sacrifice? And, you know, which one is it? And we would say it's all of those things. And in scripture, we see different metaphors at different points because the, the writers are trying to convey a specific purpose for the point that they're trying to make. And so we've talked about a few of these metaphors. Uh, we've, uh, we've talked about the, uh, the, the ransom metaphor, the economic one, uh, Christus Victor uh, that Pastor Mark did a few weeks ago. 
Uh, and then last week I talked about uh, recapitulation that Jesus represents, a big word that basically just means Jesus represents us. And Jesus represents God to us. He represents both God and man. Uh, and so the image or the metaphor tells us about the problem and it also communicates the solution. So if the image is relational, the problem is, is, uh, is a relational problem. We feel alienated and we need reconciliation and so on and so forth, as you'll see in the slide there. So that was all stuff we covered last week. Feel free to go back and listen or find that online. This morning, I want to focus uh, on the legal metaphor. And I purposely left this one a little bit longer in the series because it's the primary metaphor that is used today uh, in the Western world, in the modern world. A judicial, legal metaphor where God is judge, where there's an offense that has been made, that Satan is the accuser, um, where we stand on trial and Jesus takes the penalty and so that we can be set free and so that we cannot be guilty. Sin is primarily law-breaking in this metaphor. This metaphor can be seen in such passages as Romans 8, three to four. It says, in the law, Moses was unable to save us. So you see reference to the law. Was able to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. We see it also in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for God made sin, who had never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So this is a, a metaphor that most of you would be most familiar with. Often, uh, when we default to try and explain what the gospel has done in our time, in our culture, we use this judicial, legal type of metaphor. This metaphor is, is great and powerful for a number of reasons, but it also has some weaknesses. And so we're going to talk a bit about that this morning. But it typically goes like this. In the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created man, man and woman, in the image of God. And if you've been here in previous weeks, that image of God, the Greek word we used for that was akon. Nicely done. Uh, akon, which, which just describes that we are God's image bearers on earth, that God created us to reflect his image in creation, to rule over creation, living in right relationship with God, with others, being firmly set in our identity as a child of God and stewarding um, leadership and governing over creation. So God creates man in his image. They walk in the garden. They're living in harmonious relationship with one another. And then man decides to go against the will of God and sins. Turns his back on God. So in the moment that man sins, God punishes Adam and Eve, man and woman, by sending them away from the garden. He turns away from Adam and Eve, banishes them from the garden to the consequences of their own decision, their own sinfulness. When man turns from God, his identity changes, he becomes a sinner, unacceptable to God. God and his holiness and his righteousness actually cannot turn and look towards man. So because of this problem, God sends his son Jesus to earth to live the life that man and woman, you and I, could not live. So Jesus comes to earth, lives a perfect relationship with God the Father, completely obedient to God the Father. He lives the life uh, of a perfect acone, one that is representing fully God the Father, living in right relationship with God, with others, secure in his identity, and living perfectly within creation. At the end of Jesus' life, the unthinkable happens. 
God actually takes the sins of the entire world, the offenses that have been committed through all of history and puts them on Jesus, on the cross. Jesus bears the sins of the world. And in that moment, because God, the Father, is holy and righteous, he can't even look at the Son on the cross and turns his face away. Jesus dies the death that you and I were meant to die. But because he lived a, he lived a righteous, sinless life, for those of us that believe in what Jesus has done, that believe that he lived a uh, righteous and sinless life and believe in the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, we become clothed with the righteousness and holiness of Jesus. We, as Martin Luther has been misquoted as saying, are like snow-covered dung. We're poop, but we've been covered in the righteousness and holiness of Jesus. But for those of us who don't accept what Jesus has done, we remained turned away from God and God remains turned away from us. But if we'll accept what he's done, then we turn towards God and God will turn back towards us. So this would be a summary of our modern, Western, legal, judicial understanding of what the cross has done. Does this sound familiar? Yeah. It's what, it's what we're most familiar with. And it has some strength to it. It has some great strengths to it. Some of the strengths to it is that it recognizes Jesus as our substitute, which is an essential understanding of the good news that we see in Scripture. That Jesus is our substitute, as we talked about last week, full, came as fully man to represent us. Part of, the other reason, part of the other thing that is strong about it is it places an emphasis on the individual's response to God the Father. We live in a very individual world, which is, I think, part of the reason why this metaphor has become so, um, so, so popular, um, why it's used so often, that it's up to the individual to respond to Jesus, to respond to God. And that there's initiative, that there's, uh, that there's an urgency to the gospel message that we need to turn, that we need to repent, that we need to turn towards God. It's essential to the gospel. There, there are some problems with this common understanding or misunderstanding of what's happened on the cross, however. The first misunderstanding is that it pits God against people. So it puts the primary disposition of God as enmity between, uh, between God and people. That's God's primary disposition is one of anger, wrath. That when man turns away from God, God actually turns away from him. This is the disposition of God. I'd like to ask a couple questions. Where did we get this idea from? That this is God's disposition towards us as humans. Well, it actually comes from a couple of verses in Scripture uh, taken out of context, actually. First is Habakkuk 1.13, which you'll see on the screen here. And it says, But you are pure, speaking of God, and cannot stand the sight of evil. So that's what Habakkuk 1.13 says. God is pure and he cannot stand the sight of evil. And so we take that line and we say this is God's disposition but towards humanity, that he's holy, that he's righteous, that he can't look at sin, and so he's actually turned his back on sin. But that's taken Habakkuk 1.13 out of context. If you actually read the passage there, it's saying, God, you're pure and you're holy. You've turned, um, you, you're not supposed to be able to look at sin, so why do you? Why are you being tolerant of the evil that's happening in this world? Why is this happening? That's the context of Habakkuk 1.13. Not that God has actually turned his face away, but that God is, is looking upon evil and not doing anything to the view of Habakkuk in that point. 
And God assures Habakkuk that there's a time that he will respond in the right way. But it's not, the disposition of God is not one turning away. It's actually God, one of God looking directly at evil. The other one is Isaiah 59, verse 2. It says, but your iniquities have separated you from God, for your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. But again, this is actually only part of what's happening in Isaiah. If you read on in Isaiah, it says what? It says, the Lord, what did the Lord do? The Lord looked. The Lord looked and was displeased, and there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his, whose arm? His own arm achieved salvation for him and his righteousness sustained him. When we look at Adam and Eve, Adam, Adam and Eve, they get sent from the garden. Who comes looking for them? God. They sin. They're hiding. God comes looking for them. So that's one of the problems with this understanding is, is how it paints the disposition of God towards humanity. The second, well, sorry, let me, let me comment on this quickly. It was, it was uh, a little ironic because we, we sing, we kind of reinforce this understanding of God in many of the songs that we sing. And I was thinking about one of my favorite songs, um, and we actually sang it this morning, so I want to just point this out. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch, to make this piece of poo his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss, the father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. This is one of my favorite hymns or my favorite songs of all time. I love it. Um, but, uh, but in, in recent years, I've, I've recognized the, the faultiness of the thinking in that verse, that the Father turns his face away from us, uh, but also as it's referring to in the verse uh, from Jesus himself. Uh, so that's, this is the second issue in this judicial Western understanding of what's happened on the cross is that it pits God against Jesus. So it pits God against us and it pits God against Jesus. Orthodox Christianity believes in the Trinity. You guys, you guys know what the Trinity is? The Trinity is, is how many people? <laughs> the mystery of the Trinity. Three in one. In one. The Trinity is one entity. The Trinity is God. Revealed in three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit cannot be separated forever in relation and communion with one another from the beginning of time and forever. This is essential and foundational to Christian orthodoxy. One God and three persons. Anything other than this is literally heresy. And so where do we get the idea that God actually turned his back on Jesus? It comes from the gospel, doesn't it? Jesus hanging on the cross, and what does he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, that's the verse. That the Father turned his face away. That God has pitted himself against Jesus. Which if we actually embrace the idea of Trinity, it's a bit problematic, isn't it? God becomes a bit bipolar on the cross. He has multiple personalities, Jesus and God, and then God turns on Jesus My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Actually comes from Psalm 22. Uh, almost exactly a year ago, I, I preached on this on Good Friday, uh, but I'll revisit it here quickly. Psalm 22, verse 1 begins, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? And all, a regular practice throughout Scripture is that Old Testament Psalms, Old Testament verses, prophecies, you would, you would get one line in the gospel narratives or in different letters. And the assumption was that you actually understood what the whole 
psalm was talking about. Jewish boys would actually have the psalms memorized by the time they were teenagers. And so here we have Jesus on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what is he doing? He's not being forsaken by God in that moment. He's actually referring us to Psalm 22. And this is reinforced because in the gospel accounts, you'll see details in Psalm 22 that are throughout both the gospel accounts in Matthew and Mark, not just this line, but multiple other references as well. What's happening here is that Jesus is saying, go look at Psalm 22. Instead of quoting the whole thing for you while I'm hanging, suffocating on the cross, is it okay if I just say the first line? Would that be okay with you? Go look at Psalm 22. What does Psalm 22 say? It begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the reality of the psalmist is that God hasn't. And it says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will praise you among your assembled people. Praise the Lord. All you who fear him, honor him. All, all you descendants of Jacob, show him reverence. All you descendants of Israel, for he has ignored. So he has what? Has not ignored. Sorry, he has not ignored or belittled the suffering of the needy. Wow. He has not, what? Turned his back on them. Jesus on the cross is revealing a God who has not turned his back on him or on us, but has listened to their cries for help. The poor will eat and be satisfied. All who seek the Lord will praise him. The hearts will re rejoice with everlasting joy. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. All the families of the nations will bow down before him, for royal power belongs to the Lord. He rules all nations. Let the rich of the earth feast and worship. Bow before him. All who are mortal, all whose lives will end as dust, our children will also serve him. Future generations will hear about the wonders of the Lord. His righteous acts will be told to those not yet born. They will hear about everything as, that he has done. Amen? That is what's happening on the cross. Wow. And so we take this one verse, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And said, God has turned his back on Jesus. We take a couple of these verses in the Old Testament and we say, God has turned his back on us. That the primary disposition of God, because he is holy and righteous, is to turn away. Why is that problematic? Two tenets of theology that to want to focus on very quickly, that God is immutable, which means that God does not change. Say, God does not change. If God is a changing God, then nothing in our lives is stable. God does not change like man. He doesn't change his mind. That's the first thing. But the second thing is that God is fully revealed in Jesus Christ. This is absolute foundational to Christian theology. There were hints of what God was like kind of throughout the Old Testament. But it's when we come to Jesus that we see God fully revealed. First Colossians 1, 9 to 20 says, 19 to 20 says, for, God, for in God all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. For God in all of his fullness was pleased to live in Christ, sorry. And through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Christ had the fullness of God dwelling in him. Christ is the fullest revelation of God. In John chapter 1, we, we read that in the beginning was the word, the logos is the Greek word, which means the logic, the understanding, the self-understanding that God had of himself. The logic of God. The word was with God in the beginning. Not just 2,000 years ago, but part of God's eternal nature. The word was with God and the, the word was God. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made. This is John chapter 1. And then we read in verse 14 that the word, the logic of God, actually came and dwelt among us. The Greek word is tab, it's, it's describing like tabernacled. He, he, he set up camp among us, God himself. That when we behold him, we behold the glory of God. John wants you to know that when you look at Jesus, you are looking at God. That God is like Jesus. That God has always been like Jesus. In fact, there was never a time in the history of the world that God has not been like Jesus. 
People didn't always understand that, but at the cross, we understand that. And God's revealed himself fully. Jesus is the personality profile of God. You guys like this personality profile stuff? I eat that stuff up. I love it. I, I do those things all the time. If God were to take a personality profile, what would he look like? How would he come, how would he come out? You know, Myers-Briggs, what would he come out as? I'm an ENFP. I don't know what Jesus would be. Uh, um, if you want to know the personality profile of God, you look at Jesus. So what am I not saying? Quickly, I just want to, before I go to a, a fuller understanding of the gospel, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as judgment and wrath. That's not what I'm saying. Wrath of God is a biblical term. It's throughout Scripture. But I would rather us revision what it actually means when we take it out of the judicial, legal, Western metaphor of our understanding of what that means, what that looks like. God is love. That's an essential characteristic, the essence of what God is. When I discipline my boys, which happens sometimes, some of them more often than not, they experience the wrath of dad. Let me show you a picture here. Here's the wrath of dad in action. My son was being sinful in school, not listening to his teacher, arguing with his teacher in front of the class, refusing to do work, refusing to cooperate with other classmates. He wouldn't, he wouldn't do the, the partner projects. And uh, I found out about this a few weeks ago when I went to parent-teacher interviews. Um, and uh, so the teacher explained to me what had happened uh, on the way home. We had a nice long talk, and I told them some of the consequences that were going to happen in light of the decision that he had made. He said to me, he said, Dad, I don't want to live with you anymore. <laughs> I said, my son, that's your choice. Here's the telephone. So he picked up the phone. He's like, I want to live with Grammy and Grampy. I said, that's totally fine. Um, I said, I'll give you their number. And I you know, told him the, the number digits, and I was like, do you want me to dial for you? He says, yeah. You know, so I, I dialed for him, and I said, you know, Grammy and Grampy will probably pick up. And then I gave him the phone, and I walked away, and he spent the next 10 minutes just bawling on the phone with Grammy and Grampy saying, I need to leave. I need to come live with you. Uh, my dad is unreasonable. And so we, we know this inherently as, as parents who love our kids imperfectly, but yet have an aspect, we have somewhat of an understanding of what love is. You know this imperfectly even if you're not parents. You, you have a love for your spouse. You have a love for your friends. And you understand that love is not agreement all the time, that love is not just tolerance, that love is actually more than that. We live in a culture that says uh, that love is agreement and tolerance. Love does not equal agreement and tolerance. The Bible refers to this as wrath. That when we turn from God, when my son disobeys me, he experiences wrath. What is the wrath? It's the consequences of the decision he's, make, he's made. Because of what you've done, Silas, you actually have to live in some consequences because of what you've done. You don't love me anymore. It's like, I beg to disagree with you, Silas. I said, if I didn't love you, I would actually let you do whatever you want. But I don't think you want a dad like that. Yeah, I want my dad to be like that. No, I was like, no, you don't. I tell him scenarios. If I was a dad like this, this is the type of things that would happen. Oh, you know, I try to help him understand. Every time, he gets, every time I'm disciplining him, um, Silas should get this lesson better than my other boys, that your dad is completely crazy about you. And I love you so much that I'm not willing for you to remain the same. And so when you make poor decisions, you will actually experience punishment. You'll experience, you can call it wrath if you want. That's what the Bible calls it. But what it is, it's the love of God ex being experienced by someone who's turning away from it. 
and a love that's so passionate and radical that it's not willing to let the chair stay the same. So, let me tell the gospel in a different version, a less legal, more therapeutic way, an understanding which I believe is more true to the, uh, to the biblical scope of what's being described, more true to the tradition of Christianity. This, the, the legal one that I just described was, um, you know, it's, it really became popular in the 16th century out of the Reformation period. But this one, this version, I think, goes back farther, and it has, uh, it has a few tweaks that I want to I want to show. So this is how this goes. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created man and woman. Man living as a perfect acorn of God, reflecting the image of God. Living in right relationship with God, living in right relationship with other people living in a security of their identity as children of God and ruling over creation in the appropriate way that God intended. So far, so good? Man sinned. Man and woman sinned. Just to be clear, when I say man, it's gender inclusive. Man and woman sinned. Turned their backs on God. Decided that they would do it their own way. God banished man and woman from the garden for their own safety. Why? Because the tree of life was in the garden and God did not want the position that man and woman were in to actually be permanent and eternal, so he protected them by taking them out of the garden. After man sinned, God came looking for them. Adam, where are you? We're hiding. God's searching. What have you done, Adam? We look at Abraham. God meets Abraham. I want to establish a covenant with you. You're going to bear a child. You're going to be the father of a great nation. But God, I'm, I'm old. I can't bear a child. So Abraham says, I'm going to do this my own way. I'm going to sleep with my uh, maidservant. I don't want to do it God's way. And what does God do? Turns his back? No. God still fulfills his covenant with Abraham. God even blesses the child that Abraham had outside of God's plan. And then God still gives him a child who's going to be an heir to the covenant that God made with Abraham. We see Moses. Moses and God, God has a plan to work with Moses to free the Israelites from Egypt. Moses decides to take things into his own hands, kills an Egyptian. God's like, that's not quite what I had in mind. What does Moses do? He flees. He turns his back and God runs into the wilderness for 40 years. 40 years later, God encounters Moses in a burning bush. Says, you didn't quite do what I had planned, but that's okay. My covenant still remains. Let's go back and get the people. God chooses David. You know, David had a thing for hot tubs, <laughs> for pretty ladies. Decides he's going to sleep with someone else's wife named Bathsheba. David even goes to great lengths to cover up what he's done. He murders Bathsheba's husband by putting him on the front lines of battle. What does God do? God turns his back on David? No, what does God do? God establishes his eternal kingdom actually through the lineage of Bathsheba and David. You see this type of narrative going on and on through Scripture. God sees 
The sinfulness of humanity wants to heal it, wants to restore it. So God sends his son, Jesus, to earth. God with flesh on, the personality profile of God. And he so God with flesh on meets a woman at the well. She's made some mistakes. She got married. That didn't work out. They got divorced. She got married again. Got divorced. Three times, four times, five times she was married and divorced. God sits down with her. God says, I know what you really need. You're actually thirsty for something that this world can't satisfy. And I have living water. If you want it, you can have it. Lord, give me some of this water. Go first and get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. You're in fact right, because the man you're living with is not your husband. Almost insinuating that the man she's living with could be someone else's husband as well. See, God came and sat with her at the well, invited her into relationship, invited her to experience and partake of this living water. She goes back into the village and she tells people about what God is like. I met a man. He knew everything I've ever done. There was a man. He was a, a traitor. An Israelite man. Israel was being occupied, oppressed by Rome. This Israelite man decided that he was going to actually align himself with Rome. He had what you could call short man syndrome. Looking for acceptance, looking for power, looking for platform. So he betrays his own people. He joins the enemy. He begins to tax his own people. Stealing from them giving the money to Rome, keeping some for himself. God comes, sees this man in a tree and says, Zacchaeus, come here, come down. Today I want to eat with you in your house. As we learned in our previous series, anytime you ate with somebody, it was this, uh, this relational um, statement, being in community with him. But God actually wants to meet with this traitor, this sinner in his house. Because of this encounter that Zacchaeus has with God himself, Zacchaeus says, I'm going to pay back everybody that I've taken money from, plus interest, and whatever I have left over, I'll, I'll give back to the poor. I'll give half of it to the poor. God says, salvation's come to this house. There's a woman. She was caught in adultery. Pharisees dragged her out in her nakedness and her shame. They held the law in front of Jesus, trying to trap Jesus. Jesus, what are you going to do? The law says we should stone her. What do you say? Jesus kneels down with this woman, gets on ground level with her, begins to write something in the sand. We kind of want to know what God said, don't we, in the sand there, in that story? But we don't need to because we know what God said because Jesus is what God has to say. Jesus speaks to the woman. Or sorry, he speaks first to the crowd and says, let those of you who is without sin throw the first stone. And slowly they begin to walk away, oldest to youngest. God looks at the woman and says, woman, where are your accusers? Who condemns you? No one, she says. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. You have a clean slate. There was a man full of demons, been abandoned by all people, lived by himself in a cemetery, naked. They couldn't even bind him up in chains because the demons had so much power over him. He would rip the chains off. And God gets in a boat to go find this man. Goes across the Sea of Galilee, 
steps foot into this man's territory, heals the man, sends out the demons, restores right-mindedness back to the man. The man says, Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus says, just go and tell people the good news of what's happened to you. Jesus tells a story. Jesus, trying to explain the character of God, says to a crowd of people listening to him, let me tell you a story of two sons. There was an older son and a younger son. The younger son wanted his share of the estate. The father, in the story being God, concedes and gives this younger son what he wants, and the younger son runs away. The younger son, after he spent all of his inheritance on wild living, decides he wants to turn back to the father. So the son turns back to the father and and says, can I come home? And the father says, no, first I got to go beat the hell out of your older brother. (laughs) Is that what happened in the story? No, that's what happens when we tell the gospel sometimes though. The son turns to the father and says, Father, let me just be a servant in your house. No, you're not just a servant in my house. You're my son. Come home. When the son comes home, the older brother's jealous. Is actually outside of the party looking in. He's not a part of it. What does God do? He said, well, if he doesn't want to be part of the party, we're going to be in here partying and the older brother can do what he wants. No, God actually goes outside, has a conversation with the older brother. He says, son, why don't you come back to the party? There's a man named Pilate sentences Jesus to death, death on a cross. There's soldiers spitting, mocking, crucifying Jesus. There's religious leaders in the Sanhedrin saying Jesus committed blasphemy and deserves death. So Jesus finds himself hanging on a cross God hanging on a cross. And what does God say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And in the death of Jesus, we actually see the death of God, the deicide. And the good news is that the grave could not hold him. The good news is that there is no place in all of creation that God's love is not. That God's love goes to the depth of Sheol, the depths of Hades, the depths of hell. Three days later, God comes out of the grave and says, now I'm coming back for you, all you guys that crucified me. No, he doesn't do that. God invites all to himself to full restoration, full salvation. This is a more biblical, holistic telling of the gospel. See, Jesus does not save us from God. Jesus reveals God as Savior. Jesus doesn't save us from God. He reveals God as Savior. The Bible says, even if you make your bed in Sheol, God is there. There's some of you here this morning. You've tried to run from God. You went to find yourself in Europe. Tried to find yourself, turned your back on God, but you realized that God was there too, that he met you there. There's some of you who are caught in addiction. You've turned your back on God. And to your surprise, even at your lowest points of struggling with addiction, that God's met you there face to face. And you made the same mistakes again because you're still in that cycle. And to your surprise, God's there. And then you do it again, and you're surprised that God's there. And you do it again. You're surprised that God's even there. And you're just like, God, just leave me alone. Some of you, Pursuing your jobs, status. Money has become your God. Status has become your God. 
that you've decided other things are more important than this relationship with God. And you think maybe because of that that you've actually been disqualified. But to your surprise that God finds you there. And we've started to believe this gospel that, well, I've turned my back from God, and so God must have turned his back from, on me. It must have happened. And every time we're surprised that the predisposition of God is always for you, always invitational. It's never one where he turns his back on you. His predisposition to us changes no matter what we decide to do with our chair, what we decide to do with our lives. This is the good news. This is the gospel that God is even better than we thought. And so what is, the, what is the Bible talking about when it says that God paid the penalty for our sins? What, what it's talking about is that God absorbed our sins. If you've ever been in a loving relationship with anyone, you know that at some point you're going to have to forgive. How many of you guys have ever had to forgive? Yeah? You've had to forgive somebody at some point in your life? Why is forgiveness difficult? Forgiveness is difficult because when you forgive you pay the penalty for what the other person has done. Do you guys see that? That what we see on the cross is not forgiveness because God poured out his wrath on someone that he can't stand. What we see on the cross is forgiveness because God took in himself the debt and the penalty of our own sinfulness. That's, that's the definition of forgiveness. that we let somebody else off the hook because we absorb the penalty or the debt ourselves. And that's why forgiveness is so difficult. But that's the radical nature of the cross, this cruciform God that we see hanging on the cross that says, my predisposition is towards you. And it's never changed. So yes, Jesus was our substitute. Jesus took the place that we couldn't, took the place that you and I were supposed to take. Jesus became subject to death and futility the consequences that ought to be ours. But Jesus is God, reveals God perfectly as Savior. Not just our substitute, but also our Savior. In the next couple minutes, I'm going to invite your, your attention to the screen. And I want to take a minute. Um, some of this is, might not be new to you, but for some of you, I think there's an aspect of the gospel message here that is maybe different than what you've understood. And I'm not saying the previous version, like I said, there's, there's some str strength to it. And it's the version that I understood that actually brought me to faith and I'm grateful for it. But there's issues with it. Have some of you actually adapted an image of God that isn't like Jesus? Because that image is wrong. And it needs to go. The good news is better than that. And so let me pray, and I'm going to invite you to reflect on the song and the lyrics that are on the screen, and then the band is going to come lead us in a final song. So Father, we thank you that you are like Jesus, that you've always been like Jesus. There's never been a time where you weren't like Jesus. We thank you that you revealed that to us so clearly on the cross that we see not only our substitute, yes, not only the one that took our place, yes, but the one that is God himself. The one that has his arms open wide. That his predisposition is always towards us, Lord. So I pray that those who find themselves far from you, that they would recognize that you have positioned yourself right in front of them. Those who find themselves in cycles of addiction, God, that you are right there in front of them. Or those who find themselves running from you, running from an image maybe of an angry God, that they're actually finding themselves right in front of you and your arms are open to them. Lord, I pray for those in this room this morning that don't know you, that don't know this God of incredible grace and acceptance, that they would sense your invitation back into relationship that they would sense your salvation and your restoration. We pray this in Jesus' name.
You guys believe that this morning? That God's heart will not stop coming after you. His predisposition towards you have, has never changed. That the gospel over and over again tries to convey this good news story to us that God is for you. He has turned towards you. He's never turned his face away from you. 
And this good news is actually brought about by this really word that, this word that we think is really dirty, and it's called repentance. Like, how many people just don't like that word when they hear it? It's, let me tell you what repentance is properly understood. It's recognizing that God is facing you, but you're actually facing away from him. It's not becoming broken and repenting enough and doing enough good things to convince God to turn his chair towards you. It's already there. Repentance is simply the recognition that I don't have to live in my shame or my guilt, that when I turn my chair, I don't encounter this. And God's saying, turn your chair, turn towards me. Turn around to me. You'll be surprised at what you see. You will not find a God whose disposition is against you. You'll actually find me there with open arms on the cross saying, come. Come home. And some of you have done this. You've made this decision to enter into right relationship with God, but the human experience, because salvation is not only something that's won and done on the cross, which is true, it's also something that continues to happen to us. We continue to gather it together to encourage one another with the gospel, with the good news, so that we can continue to turn back to God. And every time we're surprised at the outrageous grace and forgiveness and posture of God for you. So as we close, I just want to pray for you. And is there, is there anyone this morning that just feels like, you know what? I've turned my chair. That I, I'm living with a sense of guilt or a sense of shame or a sense of I'm journeying away from God and I actually need to repent in the most life-giving way and turn towards a God whose predisposition and posture is for me. And I want to thank John for leading the way the way he did at the beginning of the song. That's powerful. That there's no place that John said that, that God's love, there's no doubt that, that John can have that God's love does not cover. There's, it doesn't change God's posture towards him. And so whatever's going on in his life, he can say, I, if, I, if I know anything, I know the good news that God is like this towards me. So does anyone that want to join John and I this morning and say, you know what, I want to turn, I just want to turn my chair towards God. Thanks, guys. Whatever that means for you, you I, I trust that the Spirit's speaking to you. He's saying, turn towards me. Does anybody sense that... God tugging on your heart to turn towards him. Awesome. Is there anybody this morning that has actually maybe understood God in a better, more radical, good news kind of way than they had before? Isn't it life-giving? Isn't it so life-giving? Just open up your hands with me as we pray. It's a posture of receiving. Uh, God, we, we receive what you have for us. Lord, we receive the good news. We thank you that you are like Jesus, God. We thank you that Jesus isn't something separate from you that on the cross we see the full representation of what God is like. We see this radical forgiveness that is so transformative and we just say yes to that. Lord, we look at your posture on the cross with open arms, Lord, and we turn towards you in the same posture. Lord, I pray this morning that those who are experiencing shame would recognize, just like that woman in John chapter 8 who's there in the sand, that God is there in the sand with them. Saying, who here condemns you? And God, we say, no one. And we hear your voice say, that's right, neither do I condemn you. We hear you say, let he who is without sin throw the first stone. We recognize, Jesus, that you are without sin and you did not throw the stone. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. Lord, we thank you for your love. And Lord, we ask that that would become so transformative for us, that your spirit would come and break the chains of slavery, of addiction, 
of sin, of death, of futility, of spinning our wheels. Lord, and that you would restore us, that you would continue to restore us in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, thank you for coming.